Well, if you do have a Bible with you this morning, I want to encourage you to open it to Genesis chapter 23. We're actually nearing the end of our series uh, on the life of Abraham, our series in Genesis 12 to 25. Today we come to chapter 23, and I'll tell you up front that chapter 23 begins with the death of Sarah. And so I entitled this message, Death happens. And I want to say something about that before we read the passage. One of the verses that I have thought about a lot over the course of this past year or so is a, is a verse from the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 2 says this, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. So that verse is telling us that it is good to contemplate death, not just death in a general sense, that death will come to everyone, but also to contemplate our own death, that the living are to lay this to heart. And I feel like this past year has given me more opportunity to do just that. So I got my start in vocational ministry in my 20s. I spent some time after that, a number of years after that, doing a lot of family ministry stuff. I uh, One of the things I did is I taught a marriage preparation class. And because of that, I became sort of the default pastor or the default guy for weddings. I've done more than my fair share of weddings. There was a stretch of a number of years where I did 10 to 15 weddings a year and then attended a few more weddings in addition to that every year. And it was great. I mean, it was great to celebrate with uh, those couples. It was great to be part of that. But it does actually skew your perspective a little bit. I spent a lot more time in the house of feasting than in the house of mourning. And this past year has given me more opportunity to spend time in the house of mourning, walking through that with uh, various families. And I've become, or I feel like my ministry trajectory is to be more of the funeral guy than the wedding guy. This past year, I even presided over my, uh, my own mom's funeral. And there's something good about that. We don't spend a lot of time talking about death in our culture. It's a subject most of us like to avoid. Now, maybe we're talking about it a bit more right now because of the pandemic and we're watching death rates and those sorts of things. But on the whole, it is a subject that we try to steer clear of. People have different responses when it comes to talking about death. The difference in attitudes towards death can be seen really throughout history. In the Victorian era, they spoke often about death. Victorians never spoke about sex, but they spoke about death a great deal. And we have reversed that trend. We talk incessantly in our culture about sex, but almost never mention death. So I recently read through this short book entitled Remember Death. And in the book, the author highlights some of the ways and some of the reasons that we try to shield ourselves from the reality of death. One of the things he says is this, a little historical context helps us see how unique our experience really is. 300 years ago, it was impossible to avoid death because death was everywhere. Death dwelt within the family. 
as one historian put it. It happened not only to your grandparents, it happened to your daddy, it happened to your little brother, it happened to your new bride, it happened to your children. Now, we're living longer today. Most deaths now happen in the hospital, not in the home. Antibiotics and modern medicine have allowed us to overcome things that in the past would have resulted in a certain death sentence. So imagine, for example, that you lived in Andover, Massachusetts during the late 1600s. The average married couple in those years would give birth to roughly nine children But three of those nine children would die before they were 21 years old. For some families, the reality was far worse. Even at the end of the 18th century, which is actually not that long ago, four of five people died before the age of of 70. Average life expectancy was in the 30s. Now the average is nearly 80 years old. So we're doing better. But death is every bit as much a certainty. The current death rate, if you didn't know, is 100%. Worldwide, three people die every second, 180 people every minute, nearly 11,000 every hour. That's more than 250,000 people every day. And one day it will be our turn or the turn of someone close to us. So now that you're all encouraged... Let's read our passage, Genesis chapter 23, and I'm going to read the chapter in its entirety. This is God's word, and this is what it says. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah, and Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is in Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his fields. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of his city, No, my lord, hear me, I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it, in the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you, bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My Lord, listen to me, a piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. 
After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is in Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. Well, out of this passage, I want to draw your attention to four truths related to the way we ought to think about death. I mean, death hangs over this entire chapter. And the first truth is simply that death is inescapable. Now, last week we looked at the story of Abraham being tested by God. And if you remember that story, Isaac came this close to death, but God intervened. There was a dramatic 11th hour rescue and Isaac's life was spared. But there is no such intervention for Sarah. This chapter opens with the rather plain facts. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah, and Sarah died. Now, we've been tracking tracking the story of Abraham and Sarah for a long time. Chapters 12 to 23 have actually spanned a total of 62 years. And there have been lots of bends in the road along the way. There have been lots of ups and downs. There have been lots of moments of God intervening and showing his grace and his guidance to Abraham and Sarah. But Sarah's story ends the way all stories end. It ends with her death. Death is inescapable. One of the most compelling books I've ever read is the book Unbroken. It tells the story of Louis Zamperini. Shortly after competing in the 1936 Olympics, Zamperini joined the Air Force and served as a pilot in World War II. He survived bombing missions under heavy fire, one of which left nearly 600 bullets in the fuselage of his B-24. On another mission, a mechanical failure sent his plane plunging into the Pacific Ocean. He survived the crash. He then lived for weeks on an inflatable raft, baked by the sun, tossed around by the storms. He had nothing to drink but whatever rainwater he could collect. He had nothing to eat but the fish and the birds he killed. He caught and killed with his hands and ate raw. He fought off swarms of sharks that often circled his raft. He dodged the bullets of a Japanese fighter plane he had hoped would be his rescuer. He survived on that raft for 47 days. When he finally reached land, he was captured immediately. He spent the next two years as a prisoner of war. He was transferred from one horrific camp to another, suffering relentlessly under forced labor, starvation, disease, and merciless torture. When his camp was finally liberated, he was just skin and bones, barely clinging to life, but he survived. More than one in three of his fellow American prisoners died in that camp, yet still somehow he managed to survive. Louis Zamperini was a survivor. And I say was because nearly 70 years after his return from war, he faced what his family called the greatest challenge of his life, a 40-day battle with pneumonia. According to those who stood beside him, his indomitable courage and fighting spirit were never more evident. But at 97 years old, his body was a far cry from the specimen that competed in the 1936 Olympics. Worn down by time, the man who fought off starvation and shark attacks and disease and sadistic prison guards finally entered a battle he could not survive. And on July 2nd, 2014, 
Louis Zamperini died. Death is inescapable. It came for Louis Zamperini. It came for Sarah. It's not far off for Abraham. And it will come for each one of us. And we might be living better, more comfortably, living longer, but none of us will escape death. Andrew McCulloch put it this way. He said, here modern medicine is to death what a comb over is to a balding scalp. We may shield reality for a time, but at some point the comb over is no more than a monument to the power of baldness. The harder we try, the more obvious our weakness and the more obvious death's power. That's a great image. Now, knowing that death is inescapable, what are we supposed to do? The Bible's answer to that is that we ought to lay it to heart. We ought to think about our lives in light of our impending death. Now, there was a time where this was more commonplace. For example, Cotton Mather a 16th century Puritan, suggested turning the mundane details of life into triggers to think on death. He said this, When we sit at our tables, let us think, I shall shortly myself be a morsel for the worms. It's a good thought to encourage you at your Sunday lunch. When we rest in our lodgings, let us think, a cold grave will shortly be my bed. And when we view the chests where we put our treasures, let us think a little black chest like that is where I myself might soon be locked up. Look, I know that's not the most, those aren't the most pleasant of thoughts, but we ought to lay to heart the fact that the living will die. In the 18th century, the New England primer was a popular resource for educating children in primary schools. And part of its curriculum helped students memorize the ABCs by matching each letter of the alphabet with a short poem. A was for Adam, Z was for Zacchaeus, that kind of thing. But among the general biblical characters, there was another common theme. I put this on screen for you. You can just take a look. The picture next to the letter T was a skeleton holding an hourglass in one hand and a reaper's scythe in the other. And the verse beside it said, time cuts down all, both great and small. The letter X reinforced this message. It said, Xerxes the Great did die, and so must you and I. The letter Y seems even more jarring to us. A skeleton holding an arrow pointed at a small child, and the bit of verse said, youth forward flips, death soonest nips. Now we hear that and think that sounds so morbid. How could that possibly be in a child's curriculum? I'm not suggesting that we go back to doing it quite like that, but I do think we make a grave mistake, pun intended, shielding ourselves from the reality that death is inescapable. So let me give you a couple of follow-up points to that from this story. The first one is that life is short. Now that might seem like a really strange point to make in light of the fact that verse 1 tells us that Sarah lived 127 years. But we need to put that into perspective. 127 years is a long time, but not in the light of eternity. 
And Sarah's 127 years also seems short when you consider the fact that Abraham went on to live another 38 years after Sarah dies. So relatively, we could say her life does seem like it was cut short. But even if we grant that Sarah lived a long time, the reality is that we don't. The lifespans in the book of Genesis are exceptions to the rule. Psalm 90 verse 10 puts it this way. It says, the years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. That psalm is teaching us that we live for 70, maybe 80 years, maybe a little bit longer if we're lucky. But in the end, we die. Our life passes quickly. Now, you've seen this and so have I. I think I've told you before that as I look back on my life, it seems to me like the years that I was in high school took forever to pass. Now, part of the reason is my repetition of grade 10 a couple of times. But part of it is just that life seems to speed up as you get older. I mean, I look back and I think it feels like it was just, you know, last week or last year that we started having kids. But now my kids' most common jokes are about how old I am. When did that happen? I'm not even that old, but I'm more aware of the brevity of life than ever before. Life is short. But it's not just that life is short. We can also see that life is uncertain. I mean, think about Sarah's life. One commentator summed it up this way. Her life was far from easy. She suffered the shame of childlessness until she was 90. Twice she was trapped in a foreign king's harem by her husband's unbelieving folly. Twice she was provoked beyond the breaking point by Hagar. From the way her husband sometimes treated her, one might wonder whether he cared about her at all. Now, clearly he did. His grief is going to show us that. But there were seasons of struggle throughout their lives. There were seasons of struggle throughout their marriage. And chances are you can identify with the uncertainty that was part of Sarah's life. Because in reality, uncertainty is part of all of our lives. Life doesn't often go according to plan. And even when it does, it doesn't last for long. Maybe you've seen the, the memes going around right now with two pictures. One says, my plans, and the picture beside it says, 2020. Right? I mean, none of us saw this coming. Life is like that. It's uncertain. I think my favorite line about the uncertainty of life is the quote from Mike Tyson, where he said, everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the face. Life is uncertain. We don't know what's coming. I mean, one chapter we're reading about the celebration of a birth. Next thing we know, we're reading about the grief over death. And then thirdly, we can see that life is anticlimactic. Sarah lived 127 years, but it's not like she saw the fulfillment of all her dreams. Abraham and Sarah were still nomads at the time of her death. No permanent place to call home. Her son Isaac was 37 years old, but still not married. I mean, talk about a failure to launch. But you can see the anticlimactic nature of her life most clearly in the simple distribution of verses in this chapter. The heading for this chapter in my Bible says, Sarah's death and burial. In reality, there's not a lot said about Sarah here. Most of it is about her burial. Verses 1 and 2 talk about her life or her death. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah, and Sarah died. 
And chapter 19 talks about her burial. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre. The bulk of the chapter is taken up with Abraham's negotiation for a burial plot. And isn't this how how it often is? I mean, life begins with a great celebration. Friends and family pour into a hospital room to welcome the new little baby. But life often ends very quietly. Not many go down in a blaze of glory. Even those who fight valiantly against the onset of disease, the approach of death will finally go quietly. In his poem, The Hollow Man, T.S. Eliot said this, This is the way the world ends, not with a bang, but a whimper. To put it plainly, this is how most lives end. This is how Sarah's life ended. This is how most of our lives will end. Life is anticlimactic. I know you're all encouraged, but let's keep going. So we learn that death is inescapable. Second thing we learn is that grief is unavoidable. Again, I know I'm not telling you anything new when I say that. You don't have to live very long or even have very many relationships to experience the grief that comes from losing someone. Abraham experienced deep grief at the loss of his wife. This is what we read in the second half of verse 2. It says, And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Verse uses two different words to describe Abraham's grief. It says that he went in to mourn for Sarah. This was a technical way of describing the grieving process. Common practice was to have a prescribed period of mourning for a loved one. Abraham would have shaved his beard. He would have torn his garments. He would have dressed himself in sackcloth and he would have covered himself in ashes. That was a symbolic way of externally expressing the internal grief that he was dealing with. The other words that, that, that's used here to describe is the word weep. He went in to weep for her. And that word simply describes the uncontrollable sobbing of, that accompanies our grief. I think this is instructive for us. And I want to say two things about grief in light of this. The first is that Christians grieve too. You know, sometimes people give the impressions that Christians should be unaffected by suffering and should live in an uninterrupted state of happiness. You've lost your job? Well, praise the Lord anyway. Your mother died? Well, you must be glad she's now with the Lord. The motto for some well-meaning Christians seem to be, seems to be, real Christians don't cry. This could not be further from the truth. And Abraham is a model in this regard. He is deeply grieved by the loss of his wife, as he should be. We see that same type of grief in the New Testament at death, in the face of death. Listen to what is said about the death of Lazarus in John chapter 11. It says, Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And then the shortest verse in all the Bible, Jesus wept. 
So the Jews said, see how he loved him. Jesus wept at the death of Lazarus, even though he knew he was going to raise him from the dead. So grief is a natural part of the process. Those dying. And we do ourselves a great disservice if we cut it short. But having said that Christians grieve too, I think it's also important to point out that Christians grieve differently. Listen to the way the Apostle Paul puts it in the New Testament. He says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, or brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So we do grieve, but we do not grieve like those who have no hope. One of the occupational hazards of being a pastor is that I've been to more than my fair share of funerals. Now, on the day of a funeral, everyone grieves. It doesn't matter if you're a believer or an unbeliever. But Christians grieve differently because our grief is mixed with hope. Our hope is not in this world. So we grieve because of our loss. We grieve, but even even in our grief, we have hope because of the resurrection. If we've placed all our hope in this world, then death is always just a great tragedy. There's no hope in death because that hope died. A number of years ago, I remember attending a funeral for a young man who did not know Christ. Those who attended had no comfort, no hope. They had memories, but all they could see was the tragedy of a young man whose life was cut short. There was a deep sense of sadness that hung over the entire day. But that same week, I attended the funeral of another young man whose life was also cut short in the prime of life. He left behind a a wife and two young children. But it was one of the most hope-filled events I've ever been to. Even in the face of the death of those close to us, we have hope. So Christians grieve differently. And this ties in with the third thing I want to highlight from this passage which is that faith is unshakable. Now, I don't mean that we don't have questions or that we're not often puzzled by God's ways. What I mean is that even in the face of tragedy and death, we believe that God is still working out his plan. The book of Hebrews gives us this this definition of faith. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, all through the story of Abraham, we've seen evidence of his faith. But now we can see the difference his faith made in the face of Sarah's death. And you can see the difference Abraham's faith made both from what he said and from what he did. Listen to verses 3 and 4. And Abraham rose up from before his death and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead. Abraham's making a statement of faith in verse 4. Abraham's perspective was that he was just an alien and a stranger in the land of Canaan. It wasn't his true home. And the New Testament picks up this same language and says that as Christians, we are aliens and strangers in this world. This world is not our true home. And that should be our perspective as Christians. 
But it wasn't just what Abraham said that demonstrated his faith. The rest of the chapter is a detailed account of his negotiations with the Hittites for a burial site for his wife. And we look at that and say, that's not even that interesting. Now, if you're looking for a negotiation strategy for buying a house or buying a used car, I don't recommend the one that Abraham used here. I mean, he basically says, look, I want to buy a plot of land. I want to buy a place to to bury Sarah, my wife. And they say, Abraham, you don't need to buy it. We'll give it to you. And he says, no, I insist. I'm going to pay you full price for that. So don't employ that somewhere else. But there's a reason he does it like this. The actual piece of land he wanted belonged to this guy, Ephron. And Ephron says, okay, if you're going to pay me for it, I want 400 shekels of silver. Abraham was great when negotiating with God, right? If you remember that. But he's not that great. He doesn't even negotiate with Ephron. He just weighs out the money. I'll pay full price. And most commentators think it was actually a ridiculous price to pay for this piece of real estate. So from the outside, it looks like Abraham is overpaying. And you can almost picture Ephron and the rest of the Hittites kind of walking away and laughing at the country bumpkin they just ripped off. But in reality, Abraham's decision to purchase this land was made in faith. He saw something none of the Hittites could. It's a bit like what happened in the early history of the Guinness Brewing Company. In case you don't know, Guinness is one of the most successful or is the most successful brewery in the world. The company's success is linked to a decision made by its founder, Arthur Guinness. In 1759, Arthur Guinness purchased a dilapidated brewery at St. James Gate in Dublin, Ireland. He leased the four-acre site along with the buildings for 45 pounds a year. Now, the amount of money for that annual lease was not exceptional. It wasn't like it was an extremely low amount. What was unusual was that he convinced the owners of the property to lease it to him at that price for a period of 9,000 years. And the rest, as they say, is history. In a similar way, Abraham's decision to buy this land at full price wasn't just a good business decision. It was a decision that demonstrated his faith in God. Why do I say that? Well, twice in this chapter, the narrator is careful to tell us not just that Sarah died, but where her death took place. Look again at verse 2. And Sarah died in Kiriath Arba, that is in Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And then again in verse 9, after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is in Hebron, in the land of Canaan. Well, why is that significant? Well, think back to, that, to the initial call Abraham received, way back in chapter 12. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. He was told that there he would be made into a great nation. But first, he had to leave his home and go to the land the Lord would show him. So one of the things you need if you're going to be made into a great nation is descendants, right? And we've seen Isaac is now his first descendant. That part of the promise is being looked after. Now the land promise is being looked after. Abraham purchases this piece of land in faith, even though Israel did not yet possess the land of Canaan by faith. They did. And this particular piece of land is going to be significant for Israel for years to come. 
Abraham's descendants are all going to be buried there. So later, if you look at the story of Joseph, when Joseph is living in Egypt and he's nearing his death, he makes his family promise that they will not bury him in Egypt, but that they will bring him back and bury him in this very piece of land. Abraham's decision to purchase this plot of land was a symbolic way of saying, even though I don't possess it now, we will. And you might say, well, that's interesting, but what does that have to do with me? I said that faith is unshakable. Let me explain what I mean by that. If we have genuine faith, if we really believe that this world is not our home, that we are aliens and strangers here, and that our citizenship is in heaven, then we start living differently now. Jesus said it this way. He said, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself or for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. See, Abraham's taking his money and what he's doing is he's using it, investing it for the future, for what he knows will be the future. And that's how we ought to live as well. If our faith is in the promises of God, we don't live just trying to accumulate the treasures of earth. In his book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, Randy Elkhorn uses a helpful illustration about Confederate currency. He says, imagine you're alive at the end of the Civil War. You're living in the South, but you're a Northerner. You plan to move home as soon as the war is over. While in the South, you've accumulated lots of Confederate currency. Now, suppose you know for a fact that the North is going to win the war. The end is imminent. What will you do with your Confederate money? Well, if you're smart, there's only one answer. You should immediately cash in your Confederate currency for U.S. currency, the only money that will have value when the war is over. Keep only enough Confederate currency to meet your short-term needs. That is actually a parallel situation for us as Christians. The war has been won. As Christians, we're like northerners living in the south. The stuff of this world is like Confederate currency. It will have absolutely no value at the time of our death. So why do we waste so much time worrying about how much of it we have or don't have? Why do we allow ourselves to get so wrapped up in things that have no eternal value? So our faith, It's not in this world. Our faith is in the promises of God. We're not storing up treasures on earth. We're investing in eternity. Let me say one final thing about what we learned from this passage. What we learn is that the promises of God are unstoppable. I don't want you to miss this point because there are two different ways we could read this passage. We We could look at it and say how tragic it is that a husband and wife are separated by death. We can also look at it and marvel at how it is that even in the midst of tragedy, God's plan of redemption continues to move forward. God's plan from the beginning was to make Abraham into a great nation and the possession of land was one more step in the fulfillment of God's plan. And this passage shows us that even death cannot derail God's promises and God's plan. Actually, this passage hints at something even better than that. It's not just that Sarah's death didn't derail God's promises. Her death was actually the thing that opened the door 
for the Israelites to have land, possess land in Canaan. And if we stop to think about it, we will know that this was not a one-time event. When we think about this story of Sarah being buried in a purchased tomb in the land of Canaan, we should also remember another story. Nearly 2,000 years after Sarah's death, Jesus was buried in a borrowed tomb. But that grave could not hold him. And three days later, he would rise again. But the New Testament is clear. It was necessary for him to die so that our eternal inheritance could be secured. So far from his death derailing the promises of God, it was the very thing that opened the door for our salvation. The promises of God are unstoppable. They cannot even be stopped by death. And so we have this great word in Romans chapter 8, and I'll close with this, where we're reminded, it says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And whatever it is that we might be facing today, we can be confident that the promises of God are unstoppable. Not even death can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you today for your word, just the reality of it, the fact it tells us through this story, Sarah died. And Lord, we know that that is the fate that awaits all of us. But if we know you, it means that your promises will not fail at death. Lord, we have hope because we hope in you and in the resurrection you have promised to us. So God, I pray that even as we reflect on our own lives and our own deaths, that our confidence in you would be greater. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.